This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Well, good evening, everybody. Well, something weird happened with my voice there. Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. We appreciate you being on the program, however you are choosing to join us this evening. We are certainly glad that you've chosen to make us a part of your day. So without further ado, let's get right down to it. I know that normally on Tactics, something that we just typically do is that we start with some kind of local news story. But the thing is, this has been such a massive bombshell of a story, to be honest. I think it just wouldn't make sense to go anywhere else with this because, of course, you know, we, we do the show late on Thursday. We don't really have a show on Friday. And, and then you know that it was actually late Friday that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the Supreme Court justices, passed away. And the thing is, I respect her intelligence. I respect her legal scholarship. It is clear from reading her opinions and her takes on things that even though we had wild disagreements, as any originalist or constitutionalist would have, with the way that she saw the law, she saw it as a, a living, breathing document and, and something that uh, could be basically changed or rectified through judicial review an originalist or a constitutionalist just doesn't see it that way. They don't see the role of a judge that way. But there is no doubt that she had a great deal of legal scholarship. There is no doubt that she was highly intelligent. And that even when she had a legal philosophy that really didn't make any sense to me, it still came across that she was still a person that was very thoughtful and specific. And there's just a level of scholarship and intellect that took place within Ruth Bader Ginsburg that did not take place in your average leftist on today's college campus. That's just not something that typically happened. And so I respect her in that sense, and I also respect her in another sense, that despite her and I being on different sides of the political spectrum, obviously, this woman was a fighter, and there is no doubt about that whatsoever. Now, keep in mind that I am also somebody that had cancer, and to see her fight through that and to be able to, you know, have, what was it, five bouts with cancer before the cancer finally got to her and, and finally took her life, I mean, that is something to be respected. And she had actually a much more severe and much more difficult kind of cancer, and on top of that was, of course, significantly older than me going through it. And so nothing but respect for the way that she she took on that fight and the way that she did the best that she could to, you know, just, just fight for her life at that point. And even though, obviously, I am glad to not have Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court anymore, and, and I make no bones about that, I'm sad that this is the way that she was not on the court anymore. I'm sad that this was the way that she exited that career. I would have much preferred her to have retired and spent her last years around her friends and family, and I think that that's just a better way to live. In fact, we're going to get into this a little bit later, but there is a suggestion from her family that her dying wish was that Donald Trump not replace her, that the next president replace her. Look, maybe that was, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. And I understand that because what I do is politics. I understand that politics means more to me and more to us that are sort of neck deep in this stuff every single day than the average person. But I genuinely hope that that was not the case. I genuinely hope that it, she was not thinking about politics in her last moments, that she was just thinking about uh, things of a spiritual nature and also her family and the way that they were going to be once she left. I, frankly, it, it's horribly sad 
and I would say this even if it were a conservative justice, it is horribly sad to think that near the end that you would be thinking about politics. Politics is a huge, huge part of my life. I really hope that when I die, politics is the last thing on my mind. I genuinely do hope that, and I, I hate to hear if that was indeed the case. We don't know if it is or not. But based on the words of, I believe it was her granddaughter, that that was the case, I genuinely hope that that is not true, not because I, I really, you know, think that there is any political issue one way or the other, or that that is something that you could make political hay out of, to be perfectly honest, more that just for respect for her and, and just, you know, because... You you hate to hear that that was somebody's last thoughts and that was their concern on their deathbed. But I have to say, uh, the biggest takeaway from her life, in my opinion, ought to be her friendship with Scalia. Now, I'm not saying this because I don't have a lot of respect for her legal scholarship, or I don't have a lot of respect for her legal philosophy, that I don't really like the way that she ruled on a lot of cases. Obviously, that is true. But the reason that I am saying that is because we are at a time right now in our country where we are horribly disjointed. There is a severe and ever-present, abundantly clear lack of unity between people. We've gotten to the point to where we are no longer friends with people. That uh, I think in the last election, it was seven, a little over 7% of the American people have said that they have ended friendships, and not like Facebook friendships, like actual friendships of people that they spent time with on a regular basis over the election. And it feels like it's only getting worse and worse, especially with the last few months. If there is anything that should be able to unite us over Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, and unfortunately, just because of her political situation, her being a justice on the Supreme Court, I think it will do far more and already has done far more to divide us than unite us. If there were a way to unite America based on her death, it would be the appeal of her and Scalia. The fact that she and Scalia, arguably the most conservative justice, I would say Clarence Thomas is technically more conservative, but Justice Scalia was certainly more vocal in his legal philosophy. Either way, a very conservative justice. That's not even correct. A constitutional justice, somebody that saw the Constitution as the, the, the way that it was intended is to be a law that preserves certain laws and certain principles to govern and something that cannot be easily changed or interpreted or if you're going to do so, it has to be done through legislation. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who saw the Constitution as the exact opposite, they were really good friends. They spent time together. They enjoyed one another's company. They were both huge opera buffs. And frankly, I don't get that at all. I don't... I, to me, there's nothing more boring than the opera. But I totally appreciate the fact that that was something that they liked, that they had in common, and that they found common ground in things that they could enjoy one another and enjoy one another's company and presence without having to have the politics gum that up. To me, that should be one of the biggest parts of the legacies of these two justices that despite their political differences, that despite the fact that they did not see eye-to-eye -eye on virtually anything in the realm of politics, or judicial theory for that matter, they were able to put all that aside. They were able to put all that aside and see each other as human beings that had value and were worth spending time with one another. The country needs a really, really hefty dose of that. And so I would like to make that appeal. But there's actually a secondary, I think a, a less important, but still an important one, 
a, a secondary appeal to unity that could come through this. And that actually comes from an incredibly unlikely source. And that source is President Donald Trump. Now, normally, President Trump is the most divisive human being on planet Earth. Even if you like him, even if you're a huge Donald Trump fan, you have to admit, the guy is not exactly Mr. Unity. He tends to divide people, and sometimes that's a good thing when it comes... I mean, it's not good that he divides people, but sometimes his take on things when he refuses to back down for the sake of unity or engage in nonsense for the sake of unity, which some people are willing to do, sometimes that's a good thing. More often than not, it isn't. But Donald Trump actually showing exactly the right attitude and tone towards Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in my opinion, despite somebody being uh, somebody that would at least be perceived as somebody as a political opposition towards her. So I want you to see this clip of President Trump, and this is his this is his raw reaction. This is not in a press conference or anything. This is just a reporter comes up, ask him about his death. He genuinely seemingly does not know that that happened. It's it's you know, moments after it was reported in the news. And so this is Donald Trump learning of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. She just died? Wow. I didn't know that. I just, uh, you're telling me now for the first time. She led an amazing life. What else can you say? She was an amazing woman. Whether you agreed or not, she was an amazing woman who led an amazing life. I'm actually sad to hear that. I am sad to hear that. Thank you very much. Normally speaking, normally speaking, Donald Trump is not the guy you go to for unity. And usually the worst version of that is off the cuff Trump. On script, Trump, he can be a pretty unifying figure, and he's a, a talented public speaker. I mean, you know, he's not nearly as smooth or eloquent as Barack Obama, but the guy knows how to work a room. He's a showman. He's been on TV forever. He understands all of that. And when that guy is on script, when you're watching, for example, his State of the Unions, and my gosh, the, I think the best speech of his presidency, his Independence Day speech this year for Mount Rushmore, just absolutely phenomenal and electric speaker. However, when Trump goes off the cuff, when he's on Twitter, while he's on the John at 4 a.m., stuff like that, I mean, that's bad Trump most of the time. Usually that's where Trump starts going off the walls or, you know, just throwing crap out there to see what sticks. And that's usually the worst version of Trump. That reaction, 100% candid, had no idea that that was what was going on. He finds out from that reporter asking him the question, and somehow, despite the fact being off the cuff, strikes exactly the right tone and tenor and says, you know what, I didn't agree with her. Whether you agree or disagree, she led an amazing life. She was an incredible person. She was inspiring in her ambition, that kind of thing. Um, I'm paraphrasing there a little bit. But, you know, strikes exactly the right tone. And I was frankly kind of expecting when I saw the that there was a reaction video, the raw reaction of Trump, I was going to say, ooh, he's going to have to hedge something here, or there's going to be like one comment he makes that he probably should have stayed away from. No, I mean, I think that was exactly the right reaction. And the truth is, I think the reason for that is because that's how most normal average people react to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. 
And I think the same thing would be true if it were Justice Clarence Thomas or the way that it was with Scalia. There were a lot of people basically doing laps and celebrating when it came to Scalia. But those were the people on Twitter and in the media and the blogosphere and all of that stuff. The average American doesn't react that way. One thing that has been true of President Trump throughout all of this is that he, he's kind of like just a normal American. He's not really one of the political insiders, or at least he doesn't act or behave or react to things like somebody in there. Uh, that's why he doesn't tend to favor a lot of political norms. That's why he kind of thumbs his nose at a lot of traditions, that kind of thing. And he doesn't know a lot of things that people in the political sphere normally would be expected to know. But here I think that actually played in his favor. Because the average person, the average conservative, they haven't been walking around saying ghoulish things about Ruth Bader Ginsburg or saying, you know, we hope she dies or whatever. That's just not how the average good-hearted Christian American reacts to things. And so even hearing about her passing, I think that's probably the reaction of most people that happen to vote Republican. Yeah, I wish she, she wasn't a Supreme Court justice, but... Man, you've got to admire her career and her ambition. I think President Trump really absolutely nailed that. Very, very classy response to it. It struck the perfect tone. Now, granted, he was somewhat helped by the coincidence that you have Elton John's Tiny Dancer playing in the background. That probably helped him out a little bit. I, I mean, that helps with that clip. I know he didn't plan that, but, you know, that's that, that probably adds a little bit to what was going on there where he's there on the, the tarmac. But... Of course, I, I hate to bring this in, and it's sad, and, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later, too. But we have to discuss the politics of it, because this thing was a bombshell. I mean, this is just another Armageddon. It's, it's one more end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Uh, you know that song by R.E.M.? It's like they're rattling off all the different things that are going to end the world. Uh, earthquakes, wildfires, which, you know, we're having those right now. This is just one more giant bomb of gas on the fire that is this election year. And that's sad, and it's unfortunate, but out of all the things that could have happened, I can legitimately think of two scenarios that would be more impactful than the death of a Supreme Court justice. One is a candidate dying. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Whether they were, like, assassinated or just died of natural causes, assassination would obviously be a bigger one. But the death of a candidate would be a bigger deal than a Supreme Court justice dying this close to an election day. And then the other one would be some kind of gigantic scandal that is obvious, that the evidence is there, they've absolutely got them on, that there's no doubt whatsoever. I mean, they, they have the hard evidence. That, I think, would have a bigger impact than a Supreme Court justice dying and the death of the candidate, and that's really about it. There may be other scenarios out there that, that my brain just hasn't come up with yet, but I really can't come up with anything that would be of greater consequence than having an open Supreme Court justice seat like that. Now, last time when there was one just open, because the Senate refused to hear Merrick Garland and, and confirm or deny him, there was an open seat, which had a, a, which was a big deal. Don't get me wrong. That that was a very consequential thing to happen. But the difference is, first of all, the death of Justice Scalia happened much, much earlier. So it didn't happen anywhere close to this near. So there's a, a proximity difference to the day of the election 
And so everybody saw that coming by the time that people were starting to make up their minds as who as to who that they were going to choose as the president of the United States. Frankly, that was already baked into the cake by this point. This throws a firebomb into the middle of it. And Trump has been gaining and gaining fast in a very brief amount of time. Now, he had a lot of ground to make up. He was starting from way behind. There were polls that were showing, uh, on average, Trump being behind in the popular national vote by, you know, 17, 15 points. And now he's closed that to anywhere between about nine and six. So he's definitely within striking distance of Joe Biden. And so this has massive, massive implications on how the election is going to go. Uh, it seems as though, because there were a couple different schools of thought on this, it seems as though the Trump play is going to be to make a nomination now. There were a couple different schools of thought on this before Trump announced it. One was, well, maybe what he'll do is he'll hang on. And what he's going to do is he'll hang on and just basically dangle that like a carrot to go, Hey, see, if you if you want a, a conservative Supreme Court justice, you need to vote for Trump. He could have done that. I mean, obviously, he wouldn't have worded it that way. But he could have done that. That could have been the Trump play. And I'm pleased to see that that was not the case. Because he could have, and, and since in the last election, one of his big points on the campaign, you'll remember that he said to a lot of conservatives and people that were on the fence that didn't really like President Trump that uh, basically, you know what, you're going to vote for me and you're going to like it. You know why? Because of the Supreme Court. You have to vote for me. You don't have a choice. That's a little bit of a paraphrase, but it's not much of an exaggeration. That's almost an exact quote from President Trump. He said, even if you don't like Trump, that you're going to have to vote for me because of the Supreme Court. And so I, I, it would not have surprised me to see President Trump dangle that carrot in front, which the reason for that is that would be the most self-serving way for President Trump to energize his base. I mean, it runs the risk of ticking them off, maybe, but I don't know. I, I think that I really was was somewhat leaning towards thinking that President Trump was going to try to play it that way. The fact that he hasn't is a breath of fresh air, and it also shows something that I was not expecting out of President Trump, which is this is one of the very rare occasions where Trump is is willing to seemingly put the greater good ahead of his own self-interest. Because, to be honest, Frank, Trump's just not a legal scholar. He's not somebody that dives really deep into these things. And so I don't think from an ideological standpoint that President Trump is somebody that cares deeply about stare decisis or any other kind of Supreme Court decision and how it's going to be affected for a long time. The guy's not a social conservative, so he has much less of a dog in that fight. And so I think that this is something that is not naturally a issue that Trump cares about a lot. I mean, there are certain things that Trump cares a lot about. Regulation, taxes trade wars, that kind of thing. That's something that Trump, Trump really does have somewhat of a grasp on the issue and really it seemingly has an active, not ideology, that's a little bit too strong, but, but he's got opinions on those kinds of things. With the judicial stuff, he tends to kind of lead that to people that are more qualified than him to make that decision, which, I mean, I guess is smart on his part. But I really kind of figured that because of that, this was something he was going to leave up in the air, but he has announced that that is, is seemingly going to be the way that he goes, that he's going to announce somebody as soon as tomorrow. And so we'll see how that goes. We'll see who he nominates. 
but that seems to show that he is putting the interest of the conservative cause above his own interest, which is very, very rare even for a normal politician, especially somebody like President Trump. And so that is, you know, genuinely something that kind of surprised me, but, but good on him. The Biden play, I think, is going to be a lot trickier. Now, obviously, Biden's decision is less impactful in a tangible way. But Biden has to react to what President Trump does. And that's trickier for a number of reasons. First of all, liberals tend to not vote for the Supreme Court as much. This has just been something that has been shown for decades and decades of research when they poll Democrats and ask them, okay, what's the most important thing that you're looking for in a president or in an elected official uh, when president, of course, is, is the bigger one because the Senate, of course, confirms Supreme Court justices, but the president is the one that nominates them. And so that tends to be bigger when you're talking about electing a president. What's one of those qualities that you're looking for in a candidate? But on the list of priorities, consistently, the Supreme Court is very, very high on when Republicans are surveyed with that question it tends to not be nearly as high and kind of low, to be perfectly honest, when it comes to Democrats. It's always in the bottom half, and it's usually pretty low even for the bottom half. And so liberals just don't tend to vote for Supreme Court justices. That's not a key issue for them like it is for Republicans. And so Biden's got a little bit... Biden's got a little bit of a sticky wicket when it comes to that one that he's going to have to figure out how he's going to go on that. Granted, it won't impact him nearly as much as it would Trump because it's less important to his voter base. But nonetheless, he has a difficult uh, time on that one because here's the big issue. Biden's main pitch, the primary thing that Joe Biden has going for him and, and seemingly what he has been trying to convey to the American people, this is especially prevalent if you're watching his DNC speech, for example, is Trump is a very bad, very evil person, and I'm just, you know, an old guy, and we're going to return back to normal. It's time to end this craziness. This is a, a weird uh, anathema. This is just some kind of blip on the radar that happened. It's an anomaly. And so if you vote for me, it's a return back to business as usual. Everything's going to calm down. Uh, everything will go back to normal. You're not going to have American cities burning, that kind of thing. Almost every part of Joe Biden's pitch is a pitch to return to normalcy. Now, Joe Biden has left this messaging behind many times, sometimes I think accidentally, sometimes because I think the people in Joe Biden's own camp can't decide what they really want. I think that there are advisors to him that are pulling him in two different directions, and Joe Biden is basically just an empty shell at this point, and so he'll just go... He's just trying to follow his advisors, and he has different advisors telling him different things. And so on the one hand, you'll have uh, people t telling him, no, no, you don't want to alienate your base. You don't want to speak out against Black Lives Matter. You don't want to speak out against Antifa or the cities burning. And then you also have people, well, no, you're going to have to do that. It's starting to hurt us in the polls, so on and so forth. And so Joe Biden is having to walk that. But now he's got people in his base saying things like that they're going to pack the courts. They're going to pack the courts, and if we don't get Justice Ginsburg replaced by the next president, if they don't hold off on that, then we're going to expand the Supreme Court to 13 so that we can basically get a court that gives us the green light to do whatever we want, or we're going to abolish the Electoral College, all these other things. And usually it's not or, usually it's and. 
So we're, we're going to pack the courts. We're going to expand the Electoral College. We're going to make several different states. We're going to split up California into three states and then also add Guam and Puerto Rico so that we can have more Democrat senators, that kind of thing. They're basically threatening to burn the whole thing down and start over. And now Joe Biden's having to walk this weird line between, uh, well, you know, I might be open to it. I might not. And um, is it putting time yet? That's basically Joe Biden's thought process on this. He doesn't know uh, where to go because on the one side, he risks his base that is very, very angry about this, abandoning him because he doesn't seem sufficiently angry about it and sufficiently willing to punish the Republicans for not doing what they want. But then on the other side, he knows that all his appeal coming from the moderates, from those suburban housewives living in Iowa and Missouri and, and Kansas and all those, those middle of America states, he knows that his appeal will vanish like that. If he's saying, yeah, let's go in, let's burn this whole thing down. The reason that he is the candidate now is largely in part to him being the only guy that whenever they would suggest something absolutely crazy, Joe Biden would go like, uh, uh, well, the, that's not constitutional. Who stopped? I mean, that, that was Joe Biden's appeal, right? When everybody else was saying, yeah, we'll, we'll take your AR-15s, we'll take your guns, we're going to show up with armed uh, police officers and take them right away from you, we're going to enact gun control, and, and we're going to do that on day one of the presidency through executive order, and Joe Biden's like, uh, there is a Second Amendment mustard. And that, I mean, that's, that's how Joe Biden reacted to those things. And that's why people were like, okay, well, he's basically a walking corpse, but at least he doesn't want to completely overturn everything we've been used to in this country for the past 200 years. And so Joe Biden now is having to, to very gingerly and cautiously walk that line. So let's talk about the overall impact beyond just the election itself, the overall impact on our politics. First of all, Trump's first two appointments barely shifted the power of the court at all. Now, I know that a lot of conservatives are upset with Neil Gorsuch over trying to write transgenderism retroactively into Title IX. And believe me, I'm in that camp too. I couldn't believe that somebody who, who refers to himself as an originalist decided, you know what, we can just redefine the terms in the law to mean whatever the heck we want it to mean at the time, despite the fact that nobody writing the law at the time thought that that's what it meant. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous on a number of levels. I get that, and I was pretty disappointed in that, too, and I think that that's part of the reason that I was even a touch skeptical of Gorsuch. He seemed like a Scalia 2.0, which is why I was mostly in favor of him, but there were a couple decisions that gave me pause. Still was a big supporter of him, but even if this guy was 100% just the reincarnation of Justice Antonin Scalia, it wouldn't have changed the court makeup. Why? Because he replaced Justice Antonin Scalia. You know, if uh, it's, it's kind of like in Power Rangers when they would have a Power Ranger leave the team or die. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it changes the team in the sense that it's a different person under the helmet. But once they put the helmet on, it's basically the same person. Like, they have all the same powers, they have all the same abilities, they're going to do all the same things, and usually their character is typecast to where they're basically the same character too. And I know I'm using a really juvenile explanation there, but that's really kind of what it is, is that if you had somebody that is just like Justice Scalia, 
which Gorsuch is similar to him in a lot of ways, even though he would have never made that decision when it comes to the transgender question, that didn't really change the court all that much. And the same thing is true based on what we've seen so far of Justice Kavanaugh. It looks as though Justice Kavanaugh is slightly more conservative than Justice Kennedy, but in a lot of ways he's been Kennedy 2.0. I think you could even make the case that he's slightly to the right of Justice Roberts. So that did shift the court a little, but not a ton. He's definitely not a Samuel Alito replacing Justice Kennedy. That, that's not what happened. And so because of that, Trump's nomination so far, they've had an impact. And it's certainly better that Trump was making them as opposed to Hillary Clinton. But they haven't really shaken up the court. This is completely different. This is Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Some people would argue the most liberal judge on the court. I would argue the second, because Sotomayor is definitely worse, in my opinion. But you have the second, at the very least, the second most liberal justice on the court now being replaced by a Republican president. That's huge. That could change the makeup of the court for generations. Now, is that going to be something that overturns the biggest issue for the court, Roe versus Wade? Honestly, probably not. I think that looking at the court right now, you have a very reliable vote to overturn Roe v. Wade and Justice Clarence Thomas and probably Samuel Alito. I don't think Roberts is going to do it. I just don't, especially based on some recent abortion cases. I don't think that you're going to see Justice uh, Kavanaugh overturn Roe v. Wade. I think that he might try to softball and allow more restrictions for it. But overturning it, I, I doubt that. The guy's too much of a, uh, he, he's entrenched in stare decisis and, and following court precedent. I just don't see him overturning Roe v. Wade. So even if whoever Trump nominates is staunchly pro-life, I, I think that you're still going to lack the five votes that you need. I think the best that you could hope for is that Gorsuch and Samuel Alito and Thomas all go pro-life. That would bring, if the new person is also a vote in favor of overturning Roe, that brings you up to four, you need five. And so is it an incredibly consequential decision on a lot of other issues, and to a degree the issue of abortion, just not to that extent? Yeah, probably. It's going to be a pretty big deal to have Ruth Bader Ginsburg's vote replaced with somebody that might be somewhat originalist or constitutionalist. That's going to be a very big deal on a lot of cases. It's probably not going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Much to my chagrin and, you know, disappointment, I would love for it to overturn Roe v. Wade. I just don't see it happening. Maybe I'm wrong, but we will we will have to wait and see. But there is a difference in Republican justices and Democrat justices. And I'm not talking about ones that are actually Republicans or Democrats themselves, because to be honest, I don't care whether a justice is a Democrat or a Republican. Trump made a big deal about replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a woman. I don't care about that either. I care about one thing. Are they going to show fidelity to the Constitution? Are they going to adapt an originalist viewpoint on the Constitution and do the best that they can to interpret the law as it was intended when written by the founders. If they do that, I don't care if they vote for Democrat in every single election and have since they were 18 years old. I don't care if they're a woman. Heck, I don't care if they're gay. I mean, frankly, I would find that weird, 
But I don't even care if they do that. If they are going to be somebody that is an originalist that follows the Constitution, what they do in their personal life does not affect me. And so I really don't care whether they're men or women. That you know, It's not as though they are more or less likely to interpret the Constitution in a certain way based on whether or not they have two X chromosomes or an XY chromosome. It doesn't affect that. And so it is completely immaterial to me at that point. All of the things surrounding that I care, are they going to be a good impartial judge that interprets the Constitution the way it was intended and stops laws that are unconstitutional? That's really all I care about. But the reason that you see such a stark contrast in Republican judges and Democrat judges, the reason that in every single decision, all the liberal justices always vote the same way, but when it comes to Republican appointed judges, not Republican judges, Republican appointed judges, that sometimes they go one way, sometimes they go the other way. It's because there is a fundamental difference in how Republicans and Democrats view the court. Republicans and you know, conservatives are slightly different on this, but Republicans as a whole, using the very broad term, the broad umbrella, everybody that votes with Republicans on a regular basis, using that sort of umbrella term, Republicans tend to see the court as a, a bulwark against unconstitutionalism. In other words, just ignoring the Constitution and allowing things to, to go wild and run rampant and government do whatever it wants as long as the people generally approve of it regardless of whether or not it fits or, or stays in line with the constitutional framework or not. Democrats don't see it that way. And we're going to get into some of that philosophy here in a second. But the reason that that is so different and the reason that you get those different legal philosophies in is because, frankly, Republicans are scared to death of being borked. And if you don't know about that, I don't have time to go into all of it. Look up Robert Bork and what happened to him with his Senate confirmation. They're afraid of somebody that is a real originalist, somebody that has actual originalist ideas about the Constitution and wants to uphold the Constitution. They're afraid of him being trashed and destroyed and ultimately not getting confirmed the way that Robert Bork did. In fact, that's the reason it's called Borking. It came from him. And they just savaged the guy politically, personally. They used a, a carpet bombing kind of, rhetorically of course, but a, a carpet bombing kind of strategy, death and destruction and, and everything. They were willing to do anything to keep that guy from getting on the court. And I think you're actually going to see something very similar here regardless of that. And Republicans, because of that, they do not properly scrutinize liberal justices. Out of some kind of weird you know, desire for nostalgia or thinking of the court as an impartial body, when a liberal president or a liberal, um, when, a, when a liberal president nominates a justice, no matter how liberal they are, if they are technically qualified, and by that I mean they, they're like, okay, they've served several years on the lower courts and they, you know, have a law degree and all of that stuff, even though that's actually not a requirement. They could nominate anybody. President Trump could nominate me as a Supreme Court justice. Which, you know, would be pretty cool if, if I could do I would be woefully unqualified. But the point is, I could do it. I mean, from a constitutional perspective, well, I say that there may be an age requirement. I'd actually have to look that up. But either way, 
the president is allowed to nominate a citizen of the United States as long as, you know, they don't have to have a law degree or have been a judge or whatever. Elena Kagan is actually an example of that. She had never been a judge in her life before that. But nonetheless, Republicans tend to, regardless of how they, they see the law, see the Constitution or that legal philosophy, because they, they sort of idealistically want the court to be nothing but an impartial jurist, somebody that looks at the law and goes, okay, constitutional, unconstitutional, that's all I care about, my personal feelings don't enter into it. Because that's what they want it to be, they kind of imagine that it is and react based upon that. And so even when you have somebody like Sotomayor come in and like, yeah, well, she served as a judge and she's technically, you know, qualified for this job. So, okay, we're going to vote in favor of her. Democrats do not do that. If there is somebody that they believe is a threat to their worldview, they're not going to vote for them no matter how qualified they may be. And so because of that mindset, Republicans tend to just rubber stamp Democrat appointments and the opposite does not happen. And that's why you see that Democrat judges tend to vote in lockstep and judges that are appointed by Republicans, they tend to be all over the place. That's the difference that you're seeing there. But to understand all of that, you do have to go back to an understanding of the legal philosophy. Ever since FDR, Democrats have always viewed the court as a tool. To them, it's not an impartial jury. To a conservative person, the court is supposed to protect them from everything that is unconstitutional, including things we may want to do. For example, Let's say that there was a bill passed that said universally no states can recognize gay marriage. That is something from a social conservative standpoint would be a good thing. Now, not me personally, I tend to be more libertarian on stuff like that, but let's just use that as an example. That universally nobody can, can get gay married in the United States. Well, if that law came before an actual originalist on the Constitution, what they would have to do is look at it and go, yeah, you can't do that. That's a state issue. We have a Tenth Amendment, guys. So, no, that law is unconstitutional. And that's what a justice should do. Abiding by the rules set in place by the Constitution should occasionally do things that even conservatives don't like. That was one of the points of Justice Antonin Scalia. He said in the famous case where they were talking about whether or not you could make flag-burning illegal, it's like, sorry, it's protected by the First Amendment. You may not like it. I don't like it. That was Justice Scalia speaking. But just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's not free speech. And so you really have to understand that mentality. Democrats don't have that. You see, to them, there really should be no separation of powers and no distinction between the roles of those powers. If they can use the White House to get done what they want done, they're going to use it. That's why you have President Obama saying, I've got a pen and a phone and screw you, Congress. I don't care what you want to do. I'm going to do it regardless of, of what you think. He has no respect for or does not care about the separation of powers. If it means getting his agenda done, he doesn't care. And this is why it's so hard to have an argument about constitutionality with somebody that is on the left, because they really couldn't care less whether or not the president or the Congress or the court is violating the Constitution because it is a non-issue for them. And you see the same thing happening with the, uh, uh, with the, um, the legislature. 
you will have a Democrat-controlled House or a Democrat Senate doing things that are blatantly unconstitutional, but they don't care because, in their mind, it is just another lever of power. It is just another tool. They see the court the same way. Essentially, what liberals want in a court, whether it's the Supreme Court or a federal court, you know, a district appeals court, whatever, they want the court to greenlight all of their policy proposals, all of the policies that they want to put in place, and then they also want to, if they can't get them put in place by the legislature or by the executive, they want them to go ahead and do those things that they would like to do but couldn't get done the right way. That's why you have people on the left celebrating, for example, the Obergefell case where they basically said, no, you can't, the states just can't stop anybody from getting married even if they are gay. And that had, you know, ridiculous levels of unforeseen side effects and, and circumstances that arose that were incredibly problematic from a legal perspective all around the, the country didn't matter to them. And it didn't matter that it was an unconstitutional decision or that it was a wrong decision to make by the Supreme Court. The only thing that they cared about is, okay, people can get, get married now and it's the law of the land. That was a non-issue for them. And because they see the court that way, they're going to continue to do so. FDR tried to pack the courts originally, and they have essentially used the court that way ever since. To them, it is all about controlling power, and the court is merely one other way to do it. It's not a separate or a distinct branch of government. It's just one more thing that they can use to shove their agenda through. They don't care about the system itself. But what has been really funny about all of this, and I admit it's amusing, is watching the political response of everybody. Because I'm old enough to remember, because I was there when Barack Obama was president, I'm, I'm more than eight years old. Uh, I remember that when Justice Scalia died, that he nominated Merrick Garland. And when that happened, what you saw is all of the Democrats talking about how horrible and selfish and evil and how it was a degradation of duty how they were basically going AWOL and neglecting their constitutional duty as the Senate to actually hear out Merrick Garland and either vote him up or down. And by the way, from a constitutional perspective, that's not true because the Senate also has the power to just say, nope, we're not going to hear it. Now, should they? No. But can they? Yes. And I'll get to that in a second. And see, now what you've seen is a complete 180. Now, all of the Republicans are, are you know, ready to shove this thing through as, as fast as humanly possible and get it done before President Trump has to face an election, which, by the way, there is a certain rationale in that, especially when you have one side that are threatening to hold it up and to not concede and to not abide by whoever actually winds up winning the election when you have Democrat states now implementing voting by mail a couple of months before Election Day to where there's going to be all kinds of infrastructure problems and issues actually counting the votes within those states. So you're going to have massive issues on that level. We need a court that cannot be split. We need, an, we need a ninth, we need an odd number, but nine, of course, is what we're talking about right now. We need an odd number of justices to be able to decide this. It's important that we have a full court in order to be able to decide this thing. And that makes sense, but here's the thing. Even if that were not the case, the president and the Congress 
the Senate specifically, they have the right to go ahead and do this. Is it hilarious that they all switch sides? Yeah, it's pretty darn funny. It's pretty darn funny that you have the Republicans making exactly the same argument that the Democrats were making a few years ago. Then you have the Democrats doing the exact opposite now. But, I mean, yeah, it's pretty darn funny. So, just to give you sort of an idea about this, this is a clip put together by the Washington Free Beacon of all the different Democrats and what they were saying when it came to Merrick Garland and whether or not the Senate should confirm him in an election year. There is no, there is no Biden rule. It's frankly ridiculous. There is no Biden rule. It doesn't exist. In a presidential election year, we always take care of the nomination. And then, of course, the Senate has a job to do. Give that nominee a fair hearing and a timely vote. The Supreme Court needs a full complement of justices on the bench. I would go forward with the confirmation progress process as chairman, even a few months before presidential election. Right up until September of election year. We put through judges. The president has done his constitutional duty by sending us um, Judge Garland. That starts by standing with President Obama and demanding that Republican senators do their job and vote on his nominee to the Supreme Court. We should hold hearings. We should put this person up for a vote. Wouldn't it be a political disaster for the country not to have a vote? Have the guts, the guts to vote yes or no. The idea that the president should not be able to make a nomination is totally absurd when the Constitution is 100% clear. The president has done his constitutional duty, and now it is our job in the United States Senate to hold hearings. That's what the Constitution calls for. So we've done this in an election year before. There's no reason why we can't do it now. Do your job. And for our response to be, no, 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 we refuse to even hear from you. That's an elementary school level response. But this one is pretty clear. Do your job. I think we can't have is a situation in which the Republican Senate simply says, because it's a Democratic president, we are not going to do our job, let's say a Republican president won, that the Democrats wouldn't say the exact same thing. Yeah, President Barack Obama, exactly right on that. 100%. And the thing is, with the exception of a handful of like nuances that I would shift there, I agreed with almost everything that every Democrat said. The Republicans are being hypocrites. The Democrats are being hypocrites. They are completely changing their tune and making the exact opposite argument that they made back when it was Merrick Garland. You know who never changed? Me. You know who never changed? Most of the conservatives. I had all kinds of conservative friends say, you know what, I don't like Merrick Garland. I don't want, to get, I don't want him to get confirmed. But they should do their job. They should go ahead, have a hearing, hear him out, and then vote him down. That's what should happen. I wouldn't have voted for Merrick Garland, but if I were a senator, I would have voted to hear him out. Mitch McConnell could not have counted on my vote to not hear Merrick Garland and actually have a formal hearing and treat it like a, a real thing. Um, I, you know, There's very, very little chance that Merrick Garland could have changed my mind on that, but they're right. The Senate does have a constitutional duty even though they have the option of ignoring it, they do have a constitutional responsibility to go ahead and hear that person out. And here's the thing. Are the Republicans being hypocrites right now? Yeah, absolutely. They totally are. And the Democrats are too. But were they within their right to do it? Yeah, they were. 
They didn't do anything outside their constitutionally afforded power. Because here's the thing. A presidential term is four years. Not three and a half. Four. Not three and three quarters. Four. Not three unless you're two months out from an election. Four. President Trump won the election, and he is, barring an impeachment, which, you know, they already tried that once, so I kind of doubt they're going to try it again, even though that, well, actually, there's been some suggestions of that as well. But he has four years as president. And his powers as president do not decrease the closer he gets to his term expiring. That's not a thing. Nowhere in the Constitution is that stated. And so up until the, the inauguration day, President Trump has the authority to nominate a Supreme Court justice. He actually doesn't even technically have to have an opening. That's what they're talking about with all this packing of courts. Now, I don't think that he should nominate one if, if he has nine judges on the court, obviously, and I'm going to make that case in a minute as well. But the point is, if you're talking about constitutionality, President Trump has his full power as president. They don't, they don't wear out. They don't you know, go away the closer you get to an election. And by the way, uh, I believe it's 10 times we have had a Supreme Court nomination in an election year when the president, you know, had the possibility of, of losing. And you know what? Whenever it was the, the, the same party in the Senate, they confirmed it. This is not something that is wildly outside the realm of tradition. So not only is it legal, it's, it's actually constitutional for him to do this. It's also precedent as well. And so... Yeah, the, the Republicans are totally being hypocrites. They're totally making the opposite argument that they were the last time. It is inconsistent. There are people that are tr trying to do some mental gymnastics and explain how it's not inconsistent. No, it's inconsistent. Lindsey Graham is doing a complete 180 on that. They are inconsistent in that way, which is why, from the very beginning, they should have taken the stance that I did. Either gone ahead, heard him out, and then voted him down, or, and they could have done this as well, just admit that they were playing politics. I would have more respect for Cocaine Mitch and, and Lindsey Graham and all the other ones that were there if they just said, yeah, you know what? We don't like Merrick Garland and we're just not going to hear him because we don't like him and we don't think that he'll make a good judge. I mean, it's petty and it may not look good, but at least it's more honest. At least they're not playing this game of, well, in an election year, we think that we should leave this up to the American people. We should let them decide. That's bullcrap. President Barack Obama was president for four years, too. After he won his second term, he had four years to make nominations to the Supreme Court. And so there is rampant hypocrisy on both sides. But it would have been smarter for the Republicans to just go ahead and admit either that they were playing politics early or just actually heard Garland out and had an up or down vote on him. But here's the, the way that this math is going to play out. They have to get 50 senators to approve of even hearing him out. And already, Suzanne Collins and Lisa Murkowski, the, you know, who were basically just Democrats that happened to wear a lot of red. I mean, that's, that's really all it is. They're Democrat senators that occasionally vote with the Republicans on meaningless issues to keep up appearances. Uh, they're, they're both pro-abortion. They're, uh, on all the issues that actually matter, they're Democrats. They'll occasionally just, you know, pay lip service to being Republicans, and that's about it. They never met a spending bill they didn't like. They've never been in favor of 
decreasing taxes, when it comes to Obamacare, they're all for it. They voted not to repeal it, so on and so forth. They're just Democrats that happen to wear red a lot. That's all they are. But I do have to point out here that this would be a little bit more secure if the people of Alabama hadn't royally screwed up in picking Roy Moore as our candidate. Because Roy Moore, of course, losing to Doug Jones is the reason that we have one more Democrat senator there in the Senate from the reddest state in the country. And remember that Mo Brooks, Mo Brooks could have been your representative. But of course, they rejected him in the primary because a bunch of idiotic, low-information voters that worship at the feet of every single thing Donald Trump does go, well, the TV told me Mo Brooks doesn't like it. But, you know, that's how it happened. Buy out a bunch of ads and tell people that Mo Brooks hates Donald Trump and then somehow you wind up with Roy Moore as your candidate and then he loses to Doug Jones, only... The only Republican in the state of Alabama that could have lost to a Democrat in a statewide election. But there you go. Anyway, you know, that's in the past. We're here now. And it does look like, it does look like they do have 50. And remember, they'll have to get 51 to actually confirm him because they have Mike Pence. And so they have to get 50 senators plus Mike Pence's tiebreaker. But it looks like regardless of whether or not, whether or not he's going to get confirmed or, or her, whoever it may be, it's you know, Donald Trump basically said it's going to be a woman. But nonetheless, uh, when it comes to this, it looks like we actually are going to get a hearing, and that is because Mitt Romney came out earlier today, Senator Romney of Utah, and said this, and, and we won't read the whole thing, but we'll read this part of it. So he said uh, that he's basically going to go forward and vote to hear out whoever is the nomination for President Trump, and he said it this way, it is based on the immutable fairness of following the law, which is the case in, the, in this constitutional precedent. And then he goes on at the bottom here. I intend to follow the Constitution and, uh, Constitution and precedent in considering the president's nominee. So basically, you know what? I'm willing to hear them out. I'm willing to do my job as a member of the United States Senate, hear out the nominee that the president has duly authorized to nominate to us, and then I will vote based on their qualifications and whether or not I think they need to be a justice. Good job, Romney. Props to you. Frankly, I really thought you were going to weasel out, and so I'm pleased to punch with you because I set a very low bar for you. But nonetheless, you know, props to Romney for actually doing what he's supposed to do. That should be the stance of every single Democrat senator, and it also should have been the stance of every single Republican senator back when Merrick Garland was nominated. You know what? I probably won't like him. I already see some things in his judicial record that lead me to believe that he's not fit for the job. But yeah, I'll hear him out. That's part of my job as a senator. I mean, I'm drawing this big, fancy, nice, fat, taxpayer-funded check. I might as well actually try to do my job. I think that's a fair standard to have. And so, weird thing that I did not expect to be saying on today's show, but yeah. Props to former governor and senator of Utah, Mitt Romney, on that one. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a break, and we'll be back in just a little bit here on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thanks so much for being with us here on Tactics. 
But there was a video that surfaced in reaction to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her passing. And, you know, I, I do genuinely hate that because of the way that our system works now, and I know that it's been this way for a long time, but the lifetime appointment of judges used to be something that, especially when a judge fell into ill health, they kind of gracefully bowed out on. And now it's really not. And unfortunately, because of that, sort of as a side effect, we have people reacting in very different ways to this person's death. And, and I hate that this is something that is done. It's been several days now, so I feel okay talking about this now. Um, it, it's, it's less of a, I guess, less of an emotional sting to be talking about the, the death of a human being resulting in all these sort of cascading side effects. Uh, but here's one person that reacted immediately to it. And just like most immediate knee-jerk reactions, it didn't come out so well. So let's go ahead and watch this. I'm driving your car, but I just got a notification that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. <laughs> Could this year get any <laughs> Ruth, you just had to make it to 2021. <laughs> all right, so bad judgment all the way around on this. First of all, the the initial gut reaction that that's like a kid it's like a, a toddler reacting to something and on top of that not only did she have this absurd childish overreaction to it and i get that it's a big deal i've been talking about it being a big deal my entire show has been about it that's how a big deal i understand that it is but that's not the way an adult reacts to really anything not an emotionally stable, healthy one, anyway. And yet, she has this reaction, but not only has the reaction, but then goes and films the reaction. And then not only films the reaction, then makes a conscious decision to, oh yeah, that looks good, post. We're not living in a healthy society where people think that these are good decisions. But, you know, ironically... People like Ruth Bader Ginsburg are the very reason that people feel this way about a Supreme Court justice dying. And here's what I mean by that. If you have the judicial philosophy that I was talking about earlier in the show of originalist, conservatives, constitutionalist, whatever label you want to slap on them, then the justice really isn't supposed to matter that much. Because if you have somebody with an, ori an originalist ideology... Who is sitting in the seat shouldn't matter very much because all they're doing is they're looking at the law and they're looking at the Constitution and going, mm, something doesn't match, so that law is gone now because the Constitution says something else. Or the opposite. They look at the Constitution and they look at the law and go, yeah, it checks out. All right. Yeah, go ahead. That's all that's supposed to happen. The judge is merely supposed to be the final judge. The You know, that's why they're called judges. They're supposed to be the final judgment on whether or not a thing is constitutional or not constitutional. Now, they're not the only one because, you know, we have an oath of office where our president is supposed to be a backstop against un unconstitutional laws. Boy, that didn't last long. See John Adams. I mean, he's literally the second president and already started some of that, and, and Jefferson had similar issues, and so on and so forth, and, you know, men that I, I deeply love and revere, but they're imperfect, and sometimes things slip past them. But nonetheless, 
this is what the Supreme Court is ideally supposed to be doing. They're supposed to look at laws and go constitutional, not constitutional. And that's really it. And so in that system, ideally, the judge should make virtually no difference. As long as they are intelligent enough and competent enough and knowledgeable enough about the law, who's sitting in that seat shouldn't make any difference at all. But somebody like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who believes that the Constitution is a living, breathing document that is constantly changing and shifting and evolving to fit the times, you can see how a jurist makes a really, really big difference in that system. Because if you get somebody that believes it should breathe and live and evolve in a different direction, well, then all of a sudden, the job of a judge is completely different. Then all of a sudden, the personal ideology of the person doing the interpreting is really, really important. And so the irony in all of this is that the legal philosophy championed by Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the reason that people feel like they are literally losing their mind and going bat crap crazy and posting psychotic toddlerist rants on social media platforms in reaction to a jurist no longer being on the bench. If you're living in a conservative's world, if you're living in an, an idealistic system put up by them, the jurist really doesn't make a difference. The Constitution and the laws do, but the jurist doesn't. In a liberal mindset, where the Supreme Court is merely a tool to push forward their agenda, well, the jurist makes a huge difference. Because somebody that interprets the law however they want to, they can interpret it in a conservative way or a liberal way. A jurist that's just a jurist is just interpreting it the, the Constitution's way and doesn't care about the liberal and conservativeness of a law. And so it, it is ironic in that sense. But here's the thing. Liberals, if you're upset that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to be replaced by President Trump, you have exactly one person to be angry at. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, and I've already paid her quite a few compliments because I believe that there is quite a bit to be admired about the woman, even if her legal philosophy was completely backwards. But here's the thing. She was diagnosed with cancer in 2009, at the age of 77, and yet she did not retire. Let's see, who was the president in 2009? Oh, that's right, Barack Obama. And what party was in charge of the Senate in 2009? Oh, right, it was the Democrats. So if there was ever an opportune time for her to retire, it would have been her first cancer diagnosis back when she was 77 years old. Remember that the average life expectancy for a female in this country is 78. And so you're 77, you're only a year under the average life expectancy, and on top of that you have one of the deadliest forms of cancer, and yet she still decided to stay on the court? Yeah, that's on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. If she wanted to be replaced by President Barack Obama and be, you know, a sure thing that she's going to be replaced by a jurist that is going to follow in her footsteps and be somebody that is, you know, similar to her legal philosophy, she had the opportunity to do that. 
Barack Obama was president for seven years after her diagnosis. And the Democrats controlled the Senate for, if I'm not mistaken, five of those seven years. And so she had ample opportunity over and over and over again to retire. She never did. And so, you know, I don't want to make this into a whole big thing, but if you're mad that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to be replaced by Trump, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the person that you should be mad at because she decided not to step down for seven years after getting cancer and being over the age of life expectancy in this country. So, you know, that, that's really where you should be directing your avarice, or avarice, directing your malice, sorry. Um, I don't think that you should direct it that way, and I've explained why already, but I'm saying if you're going to be mad at somebody, that's the person that you should be. And by the way, this is not a left or right thing. Frankly, I'm very surprised that Justice Thomas did not resign in the first term of Trump. I really am. I wholeheartedly expected him to step down once Barack Obama was no longer in office because Justice Thomas is getting on up there too. He's already over the age that most men die in this country. And I love Justice Thomas. He's by far my favorite justice. It's not even close. There's not even a close second at this point. But nonetheless, I, you know, it would kind of have been a smart thing for him to have stepped down in this term because otherwise there's a pretty good chance he would have been replaced by a person or at least has the possibility of being replaced by Joe Biden or whoever the Democrats uh, elect in, you know, possibly the next election, I don't know. I mean, that's possible. 2024, the Democrats come out. But either way, regardless of who wins, it would have been the sure thing for him to go ahead and step down this term so that President Trump could appoint a replacement for him, and he didn't do that. Kind of surprises me. I'm not showing a double standard here. I think that Justice Thomas probably should have resigned. As much as I would hate to see him leave the court, he's not going to live forever. But really their ideas about governance, and, and by them I mean the left, their ideas about governance are the reason that people feel completely beholden to and that their emotions are riding on whether or not this person is in the Supreme Court or not. Because to them, you know, who is in office makes this absolutely everything. Who is in office? Who wins elections? You see, because they don't hold to this idea that we should just be following the law of the land, follow the Constitution, we should only do the things that it prescribes to us, and so whoever is making policy doesn't make that big a difference in the average everyday life of somebody if we were living in a true republic that our founders intended with a very small, limited government. If you believe in a really big government that has a lot of influence on the life of everyday citizens— well, then who's in office or who happens to sit on the Supreme Court makes a really, really big difference. For example, if you were living in Caleb Cockwood's world, then your healthcare system would be completely independent of, I mean, there would be virtually no interaction other than a handful of absolutely necessary regulation, and even then, not at the federal level. If you were living in my world, that would be completely disconnected from who is in office. In their world, they think that that should be the only thing that matters when it comes to your health care. Who gets elected? They should be running everything when it comes to that system. And so, 
people having these nervous breakdowns and then posting them on social media, that would not be a thing. People would not feel that emotionally invested in it if we were living in a world with small, limited government. Who is in office really shouldn't make that big a difference in your life. And that's the way that it ought to go, and that, that's the way our founders intended, that the average, everyday citizen, their life would not be greatly impacted by who was in office. But it all does boil down to a difference Republicans and Democrats see in the court. I've already explained this a little bit, so I'll go through it pretty quickly. Ultimately, to a conservative, the Supreme Court is nothing more than a firewall. It is something that prevents bad things from getting through. That's all the Supreme Court is supposed to do. And you know what? Just like your computer's firewall, sometimes it even stops good things. Sometimes it even stops things that you want it to do, but it's doing that because it's saying, hey, there's a virus in here. There's something in here that you don't want. There's something in here that violates the Constitution. Therefore, we're going to hold off on it. Sometimes it may not even be a morally bad thing or maybe even something that you want. doesn't matter. It's our job to say whether it's constitutional or not constitutional. The Democrats simply do not see it that way. It is merely another tool in the tool belt. You see, to them, the branches of government are kind of like if you're trying to build a house. They see the different branches and the different people in the government as merely tools to further that end goal. They don't have different roles. It's all just moving in one direction. It's all so that we can get here. And, you know, maybe it can be, a, a, you know, maybe this time we're going to use the hammer to do it. Maybe this time we're going to use the screwdriver. But ultimately, the only thing that matters is that our agenda gets through. There is, I mean, it's just a world of difference in the way that we see the role of the court. You see, to a actual conservative, they think that we need to check even on ourselves. We need something that needs to stop us because according to the conservative worldview, human beings are flawed people. We are flawed individuals. And sometimes what we want may still not be the right thing. Sometimes what we want may trample on the rights of an individual. And because of that, we need a group of people that are there and willing to say, sorry, I don't really care whether you want to do this or not. I don't really care what your political agenda is. I don't give a crap how many people in America approve it. I don't care if this policy has a 99% approval rating. Doesn't matter. It's unconstitutional. You want to change it? Amend the Constitution. That's what a judge's job is. And, you know, frankly, for a Democrat, when they see it as being limitless, and the, the role of the federal government is whatever we want it to be, and the role of the Congress and the President and the Supreme Court are whatever we want it to be, and the only thing that matters is what we want, well, then you can trample over the rights of the individual. Then the rights of the individual simply do not matter. They have a seething disdain, fundamentally. They have a seething disdain for the rights of individuals because it acts as a speed bump, as an obstacle to getting what they want. And anything that acts as an obstacle to getting what they want must then be bad. It's a very childish way to look at the world. You see, to a two-year-old, they want a cookie. They don't care whether it's going to spoil their dinner. They don't care whether it's good for them or not. They don't care that it might keep them up all night. That doesn't matter to them. All they know is they want the cookie. Ergo, anything keeping them from getting the cookie is bad. 
In their mind, that's about as deep as moral thought goes. If I want it and can't have it, it must be bad. Anything keeping me from having that must be a bad thing. That's why they are willing to say to their parent who loves them and takes care of them, looks after them, and is the one that bought the cookie in the first place. That's why they're willing to say to them that I hate you or whatever else that they say in the moment, because to them, once you become an obstacle to the thing that they want right then, not thinking into the future, you become the bad guy. And Democrats act exactly the same way. Anything that keeps government from being uh, morphed into whatever they envision for it, you are the bad person when that happens. And if you want further proof on this, Democrats have been threatening to just blow up the system. Well, if the system's keeping us from getting our policy proposals through, if the system, whether it's the Electoral College or the Supreme Court or whatever else it may be, uh, even though this is completely constitutional, the, the President Trump and the Senate are completely within their right to confirm another Supreme Court justice if they want to, if the system is, allows this thing that I don't want and will allow a justice to go in that will act as a, a stopgap, as a speed bump, an obstacle to me getting my way, then it's time to burn the whole system down. They react like toddlers. And somebody that you could really see this example sort of shine forth on and puts this into perspective, this is Don Lemon the other night on CNN basically articulating this in not so many words. What happens? Everybody sticks We're going to have team. to blow up the entire system. And you know what we're going to have to do? No, I don't know about You know that. what we're going to... Yes, yeah. we, we have to do? You just got to Honestly, from what your closing argument is, you're going to have to get rid of the Electoral College. Because the people... I don't see it. Uh, because the, the minority in this country decides who the judges are and they decide who the president is. is but that, you need a constitutional amendment to do that. And if Democrats, if Joe Biden wins, Democrats can stack the courts and they can do that amendment and they can get it passed. Well, you that's need two-thirds vote in the Congress and three-quarters of the state legislature. They may be able to do that. Maybe. All right, so a couple of things. First of all, Don Lemon should be commended on one thing. Somehow he made Chris Cuomo look smart. That is not an easy thing to do. And so Don Lemon actually making Chris Cuomo look smart and reasonable. That is an, that's an Emmy earning award right there. If you can make what Chris Cuomo's team and writers and producers and camera people and everything else, if you've done what all of them can't do in 15 seconds, that is something to be commended for Don Lemon. But, I love the irony. First of all, Don Lemon, of course, you heard him say that we just have to burn the whole system down. We have to burn the whole thing down and just start over. Um, and then he's like, well, you can't do that. He's like, yeah, we're going to have to get rid of the Electoral College. You need a constitutional amendment for that. No, we're just going to pack the courts. And first of all, courts can't do constitutional amendments. That's not how that works, Don Lemon. It was hard for me to tell whether he was saying we will pack the courts, therefore, we can just get rid of the Electoral College or something else. It was hard to discern the way that he was, was speaking there. But even if that's not what he meant, even if he doesn't have a woeful misunderstanding of how civics work, uh, even if he was meaning that we will pack the courts and in addition to that, we will get a constitutional amendment to undo the Electoral College, Chris Cuomo actually like, yeah, I understand basic civics. I understand that it'll take a two-thirds vote from the Senate and, and three-quarters of the states to ratify it. And Don Lemon's just like, yeah, we can get that. That's fine. So one of two things is happening there. Either Don Lemon is saying, we'll pack the courts, therefore we can get it done without all of that. Or he is saying that we'll be able to get the votes on that. If you think that you're going to get Alabama and Mississippi 
and Tennessee and even more moderate states, more purple states like Ohio and Iowa to actually ratify getting rid of the Electoral College, you're outside of your mind, dude. That is just not going to happen anytime in the near future. may happen in the future, but not anytime in the near future. That is going to be a long way off if that actually does wind up taking place. The state legislatures would have to agree to it, and I just do not see that happening. And the irony in all of that, I think the biggest chunk of irony in that whole clip is Don Lemon saying, well, the problem with the Electoral College, and we did a whole special on the Electoral College on Thursday, so go back and look at that if you want to watch. I mean, I go through all of it, go super in-depth on some of the worst arguments here. But real briefly, one of Don Lemon's dumbest arguments and, and the dumbest thing that he says in there is like, well, the minority is the one picking the president. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's exactly what's happening, Don Lemon. Because it's not supposed to be majority rule over everything. Our system was built with a respect for individual rights. And so the people have rights. The people can vote. But you know who else has rights? The states also have rights. And I find it hilarious that you, a gay black guy, wants to say, you know what, whatever the majority says, we should go with that. Yet for a long, long time in this country a majority of people would say, yeah, we should be able to enslave anybody with that color skin. Or, yeah, we should be able to just kill anybody that has sex with another guy. For a long time in this country, there were people that believed that, and that was a majority opinion. And you're saying, yeah, whatever the majority wants, that's what we should do. Screw the minority. They shouldn't be the ones deciding these things. No, the rights of minorities matter. It's literally the foundation for our entire system. But Don Lemon doesn't care about the system. That's why he wants to burn it all down. Anything that acts as an obstacle to what I want right now must be done away with. That's how Don Lemon, and unfortunately an awful lot of leftists in this country, think. Props to Chris Cuomo, which is another thing. So I, so far I've praised several Democrat elected officials and Chris Cuomo. This has been a weird show for me. Anyway. Oh, and I've complimented Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well. So uh, it's been kind of a kind of a weird show for me. But kind of along the same vein, you don't have to go to national news media. You can go right here in the state of Alabama for this same kind of burn it all down mentality. So here's Josh Moon tweeting earlier. This should be the dim plan. Let the GOP push through S Supreme Court pick and take the beating they deserve. Then kill the filibuster, expand the court to 15, grant D.C. and P.R., referring there to uh, the District of Columbia and then P Puerto Rico statehood, restore the VRA, kill union-busting laws, implement a public option, and grant amnesty to all the kids the end. Okay, so here's the funny thing, Josh Moon is, and Josh Moon is not alone in this. I have seen countless tweets the past few days saying exactly this. I've seen actual elected officials saying that we need to pack the courts if they wind up going, going ahead and, and actually picking a Supreme Court justice like this. So here's the problem. Everything that Josh Moon just listed, they've already said they want to do. They have already threatened to this. Which kind of makes the threat lose its teeth, doesn't it? Like, if you're already in the process of doing the thing that you are threatening to do, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to 
threaten that thing. They've already shot the hostage at this point. The hostage is already dead on the ground, bleeding out. The, the hostage is gone. And now the people that were taking hostages are saying, and if you don't do what we want, we'll kill the hostage. Well, you already did that, man. Democrats have been calling for literally everything in Josh Moon's little liberal wish list. They've been calling for that for, what, four or five years now? I know with several of those issues, I've seen people calling for it since before Trump was elected. You can't threaten us with things you were already planning on doing and articulated that you were planning on doing before this happened. Like, do we really believe that if Trump decided to play nice and give basically a clone of Ruth Bader Ginsburg the nomination, that the Democrats would go, you know what, we, we really don't need amnesty uh, for illegal immigrants, and, and we don't need statehood for Puerto Rico and, and the Virgin Islands and D.C. and Guam and all that. And, you know what, we, we don't need all these other things that we've been talking about for years. Uh, we, we don't need to split California into three states or any of that stuff. We're good. You know what? You gave us what we wanted and we're fine. No, nobody believes that. And so when you basically have created political arson as your mantra, when when political terrorism and threats like this and, and threatening to burn the whole system down have become commonplace on your side of the aisle, the threats don't work anymore when some new factor comes along. You're like, well, if you don't do this and you don't play by our rules, then we're going to do this. It's like, yeah, but dude, you were threatening to do that before that was even an option. Like, why would I believe that you're going to walk that back now if I give you what you want? That's why there's no reason to play ball with this side. Not at this point. When one side is threatening to burn the whole thing down, if anything they don't like happens, that's not a person that you can reason with. For the same reason you cannot reason with a toddler who is going to roll around in the floor screaming his head off because you won't give him a cookie. That is not a person that you can reason with at that point. But here's the thing. This should be a non-issue. It should. Who gets appointed to the Supreme Court should be painfully boring. I mean, it should be stuff that should never wind up on TV, like even C-SPAN. C-SPAN plays it, but nobody watches it. Nobody cares. Nobody can even name most of the justices, which unfortunately that actually is the case right now. But the idea that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is having sketches made of her on SNL and, and was so beloved by this side and there was an actual like cult of personality surrounding her, and I, don't, I wouldn't like that for a conservative justice either. But that's just not a thing that should exist. Judges should merely look at the Constitution and read the law and interpret the law based on the way the Constitution lays it out. Period. That should be all that they do. And if they did that, there would not be people passionately doing stuff like this. There would not be people threatening to burn it all down, even though they were threatening to do that and were literally doing that beforehand. This should be something that is boring and mundane and nobody cares about. That was the country that our founders envisioned. A federal government that had very little power, that didn't really invade on your life at all. And when it did, it was only because it absolutely had to and there were no other options. And it was to preserve the rights of others. And because of that, a Supreme Court that really doesn't do anything except a handful of procedural dictions, and, and that's about it. The left has created this world 
where, I mean, pretty much exclusively the left has created this world where this stuff is of the utmost importance and people feel like the country is falling to pieces because one 87-year-old woman passes away at the wrong time. And unfortunately, because they made that world, now they have to live with the consequences of that as well. What's sad is so do the rest of us, too. All right, so that being said, let's go ahead and go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. Now you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. The Daily Dose of Stupid, because it's the main story of the day, it's going to be centered around RBG2. But since it is the Daily Dose of Stupid, we had to go with the other three-letter acronym person, AOC. We got to go with AOC on this one. I mean, it's just too darn perfect. AOC's reaction to this has been fantastic. And I'm using that in the comical sense. But let's go ahead and watch AOC's... Sorry. Let's go ahead and watch AOC's first reaction to uh, everything that is going on here. Mitch McConnell sent out a statement tonight. Um, and as I said at the opening, the very last dying wish of RBG was that her vacancy not be filled until the new president takes office in January. That was her dying wish. Tonight, Mitch McConnell publicly, the night that she, the night of her passing, he couldn't wait 24 hours, issued a statement saying that he was going to uh, give Trump a vote in violation of, of her dying wish. People can say how appalling, people could say this is horrible, etc. but we know who this man is. We know who this man is. This is a man who does not care about a dying woman's final wish, clearly. Clearly, he clearly doesn't care about a dying woman's dying wish. Nor should he. So, while we were watching all that, I was just going through my pocket constitution here, and I'm trying really, really hard to find the death wish clause, but having a little trouble, I'm starting to think it may not even be in there at all. The idea that we're supposed to adhere to the dying wish of a justice because it was their dying wish, it's just stupid, frankly. I mean, there, there's nothing in the Constitution that suggests that what you're supposed to do is adhere to the dying wish of a justice. If I had known that we're supposed to just do whatever the dying wish of a Supreme Court justice is, then, man, we, we could have, I'm, I'm going to put in a call to Justice Thomas and, and Justice Alito and say, hey, um, when you guys die, could you just make your dying wish that we go back to the Constitution and limited powers and a federal government that only does what the Constitution says? Because apparently we're just supposed to do whatever the dying wish of a Supreme Court justice is regardless. Um, and then whenever AOC does the opposite of what she's doing now when that happens and, and doesn't give a flying crap about what Justice Thomas wanted in his dying wish. I can go, see, AOC's just, she's the kind of woman that just um, clearly, clearly doesn't care about a dying man's wish. Well, she's not supposed to. She's a congresswoman. I mean, she can express sympathy for it, sure. 
But the idea that somehow you're beholden as a government to do whatever the dying wish of somebody who, who passes away like that is, first of all, that's rooted in a horribly bad idea that these seats somehow belong to these justices. This is not Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat on the court. It's just a seat on the court. And by the way, I said exactly the same thing when Justice Scalia passed away. I mean, don't get me wrong. I really wanted somebody like Justice Scalia to replace him. But that's not a requirement. It's not Justice Scalia's seat. It's just a seat. These seats do not belong to these people. They're not royalty. I mean, we're not living in medieval England. Their dying wish doesn't matter. And so, you know, I, I'm, I understand that that may have been what she wanted, but just because that's what she wanted doesn't mean that anybody has to abide by it. But here's the thing. Does anybody believe that AOC would have given two thoughts? I, I mean, granted, two seconds is about the maximum amount of time that she can spend thinking about a single thing. But let's just pretend that it wasn't. Let's pretend that she could think for 10 consecutive seconds. Does anybody believe that she would spend two or even five seconds thinking about, well, that's what Justice Thomas wanted. He said that he'd rather be replaced by somebody that was conservative like him. So maybe we should think about nominating a conservative person. No, nobody believes that. Nobody's dumb enough to buy into that. AOC, if it were the other way around, if it were the dying wish of Justice Thomas or Justice Alito or Justice Gorsuch, that they be replaced by somebody like them or be replaced by a Republican president, the Democrats would not care. They would have immediately gone for it. If, if Of course, AOC's a member of the House, but if she were in the Senate, she would have voted to confirm somebody that was the exact opposite of them and not lost a second of sleep over it. Nor should she. She would not be beholden to that person's wish either. There is, however, a very, very tiny sliver of morally correct thinking in this thing. I know it was a surprise to me, too, but there is a tiny, tiny sliver of correct thinking in this clip. And that is when she goes, the night that she passed away. The night. Yeah. When she does that whole shtick. Frankly, I hate the fact that our political system is set up in such a way and that these justices are clinging to life and staying in offices long after they probably should have, have resigned and left them. It really drives me up a wall, and I hate it, that now we're at the point to where people are having to make political, or go, going political about this right afterward. There's a reason that I have my 48-hour rule. And it doesn't just apply to tragedies like mass shootings or terrorist attacks. I didn't say anything about this for 48 hours. Now, granted, that was real easy for me, because I didn't have a show until 48 hours afterward. But... As a general rule, I think that it's best to wait at least 48 hours afterward until you start talking about the politics of a tragedy. And so AOC is at least somewhat right on that. But again, nobody believes for a second that they would have waited. AOC would not have even waited an entire minute to tweet out that we need to replace Justice Thomas uh, like with someone that's going to do all the stuff that we want, that's going to like, you know, be all in favor of the LBGTQAI51034. Uh, we, we need somebody that's going to protect reproductive rights. That would have happened less than 60 seconds after she found out that Justice Clarence Thomas had passed away, if that were the case. And so spare me the fake outrage 
that you were so upset that we found out 24 hours later that Mitch McConnell was not going to honor. Now, I wish that nobody had talked politics for at least 48 hours after she died. But let's not pretend as though the Democrats wouldn't have done exactly the same thing if the shoe were on the other foot. Now, there was one other clip from AOC uh, in relation to all this when she's doing a press conference with Chuck Schumer. This is another thing that's hilarious to me. All the time when I start poking fun at AOC, uh, usually from people on the left, they go, well, she doesn't represent all of us. She's not really a mainstream Democrat. Well, then maybe Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and other mainstream Democrats shouldn't be doing press conferences with her. This is where that took place. And I want you to watch AOC and listen to what she's saying, of course. But I also want you to watch Chuck Schumer and watch him just nod along with everything that she's saying. Congresswoman, you mentioned being open to all ideas to buy time. Would you be in support of potentially reviewing talks of an impeachment hearing, either against the Attorney General or the President? Well, you know, I think, um, I, I believe that certainly there has been an enormous amount of law-breaking in the Trump administration. I believe that Attorney General Barr is unfit for office, and um, and that he has pursued potentially law-breaking behavior. That being said, um, this is these are procedures that are and decisions that are largely up to House Democratic leadership. But um, but I believe that also we we must consider again all of the tools available to our disposal, and that all of all of these options should be entertained and on the table. So there you have it, AOC saying, yeah, when it comes to impeachment, we should like, you know, be considering everything, like all the options should be on the table and stuff. And then Chuck Schumer just dutifully, yeah, yeah, we should do that, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, if there was ever any doubt in your mind after the last impeachment proceedings of the gravity of impeachment or it being a big deal, that should be completely gone now. Like, frankly, it should have been gone even after the last time that they tried that. But if there was any lingering doubt that impeachment is purely a political process that uh, people that the Democrats will just use because they don't like the president, whether or not he's actually done anything wrong, that should be gone now. They're literally saying, even if we just have to use it as a stalling tactic, even if we know that it's not going to actually go through or there's nothing to base it off of, we're just going to go ahead and push it through as quickly as possible, just if nothing else, to use it as a procedural trick. Basically, it's, it's no more or less important than the filibuster at this point, according to them. If they're willing to use it this way, if they're willing to do so, even if they don't have a, an actual idea in place as to what they're going to be impeached for, because you heard what AOC said there, Basically, well, there's certain things that we could kind of drum up and sort of cobble together to make a case for impeachment because we need it right now. In other words, first we have the conviction, the sentence, and then we're going to go looking for crimes completely backwards from the way that it's supposed to be. Now, since we're talking about constitutionality, they have the right to do that. They have the right to impeach a president just because they don't like his face, his very, very orange face. They have the right to do that if they want to. They have the right to do it specifically as a procedural hump, a, a procedural obstacle. There's nothing in the Constitution that prevents that. However, you know, when Nancy Pelosi is making this big deal about signing it, and oh, we all have to be very, very somber, which is hilarious because she's saying that while she can barely contain her Botox smile. I mean, she's just holding back as hard as she can, trying not to just 
reveal the fact that she is grinning with her dentures as hard as she possibly can. We, we, we have to be very somber about it. Um, despite all of that, they at least tried to put up the facade of it being a very serious, very important historic thing that they were impeaching somebody and pretending like he actually did something worthy of impeachment. It wasn't just a political move. Now they're just saying, yeah, well, we might cobble up an excuse later, but we really just need to impeach him because we want to impeach him to stop this Supreme Court decision or the Supreme Court nomination from going through. Um, now, I, I mean, I guess just based on this, that impeachment is merely a parliamentary tool. tool. However, the funniest part of this is not all of that. The funniest part of this is that it wouldn't even work as a stalling tactic. And so what's hilarious here is it seems as though AOC doesn't realize that the same Senate that handles impeachments, because of course the impeachment articles would be drawn up by the House and then sent to the, uh, sent to the Senate to be voted on, that's the same Senate that would have to confirm the justice. So gumming up the works wouldn't really work here. I mean, literally all that the Senate would have to do is either ignore it and sit on it for a little while, or they could take it and just vote it up or down in like 10 minutes. Wouldn't be that hard. And so they could try to use it as a parliamentary trick to try to slow everything down, but I don't think it would actually make a difference. Does she really think that the Senate that has to confirm the justice in the first place would be willing to hear out what is obviously a sham impeachment that is done just as a procedural hiccup to try to slow down the process, especially when she's admitting to it on national TV? Does she really think that same Senate that would have even a chance of confirming this justice would be okay with that? It really is like she doesn't even understand that it would be the same Senate doing those two things. And so, uh, I don't know, it just, maybe it's AOC famously not understanding how government works, not understanding that there are three branches of government and the Supreme Court is one of them. Uh, you know, stuff like that. Maybe it is, I don't know. But the DNC's reaction as a whole, like I've already said, has been very toddler-like. And when you need a toddler, man, nobody does that better than AOC. AOC is the toddler-in-chief. If you need somebody to react like a toddler that can't get their cookie, AOC is your person, your front man for that, and she does that better than anybody. And so it just makes sense that AOC would be the one at the forefront of all of this. Let's go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. All right, Chaplain's Report today does come from the book of 1 Samuel. And we finally come to it, the, conf the confrontation between David and Goliath is about to take place. We've already seen in the, the previous chaplain's report that David is getting ready to go down and face Goliath. Saul offers him his armor, and David's like, I can't really use these. I don't know how to use a sword. The armor doesn't fit. I can barely walk. 
I'm just going to go into battle the way that I always have. I'm just going to carry my slingshot and God's going to protect me. And so that's basically been the whole thing. So now we see an exchange happen. So, uh, David actually goes before Goliath and they have a little exchange. Now, to be fair, because I want to be honest even about my heroes, David's trash talk needs a little work because they have an exchange between the two of them where Goliath threatens to do a whole bunch of things to David. is like, well, I will take your body and I will feed it to the birds of the air and so forth. And David's like, oh yeah, well, yeah, same to you. I'm, I'm going to give your body to the fowls of the air. So, you know, David's a kid at this point. Trash talk needs a little work. But the speech that he gives afterward more than makes up for it. I think one of the best speeches, one of the best lines of dialogue in the entire scripture is contained within our reading today, and so we'll go ahead and jump right into it. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 45 through 47, where he says, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up to my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that, his, and that all of this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So, the fact that he just kind of copies Goliath's threats to him and that, you know, laying that part kind of aside, the rest of the speech, I mean, that just gets you. And it's because David's faith in God is so absolute that he can say stuff like that. David says it because he actually believes it. And there's a couple things that I want you to notice about his, his speech there when he's conveying what is about to happen to Goliath. First of all, he has absolute confidence in God. Absolute. He is not in any way unsure or apprehensive about whether or not God is going to lead him to victory. Now, there are times where David does. There are times where David is not necessarily so sure of that. And maybe part of that comes with the fact that he's so young here. Maybe part of that comes with the fact that this is clearly a case of a person taunting God and taunting his people, and David knows, because he knows God and knows his nature, that God is not going to put up with that. Therefore, he will bring this person to justice somehow. And because of that, and because he happens to be here, he believes that he is going to be the instrument God uses to do that. And of course, he is right. And so, because of that, he boldly declares God's intention and is correct in doing so. He tells Goliath exactly what's going to happen. This is the equivalent to Babe Ruth pointing out a spot in the outfield where this home run is about to go. David knows what is about to transpire. And he does so because he has such faith and confidence that is rock solid that his God is going to deliver him from the hands of this Philistine and deliver his people from the hands of the Philistines. The second part of this is he gives credit where credit is due, doesn't he? You notice that when you're looking through that series of verses, that it's always what God is going to do, not what I'm going to do. Maybe sometimes we're even a little bit too hesitant to say what God is going to do because 
We don't want to overstep or to say something that's incorrect, and that's a good instinct to have, don't get me wrong. We don't want to say things that the Bible doesn't say or overstep our bounds and say that God's going to do something that would be against his nature or not necessarily in his nature or say that, you know, something wild or ridiculous like God is going to make this happen and, and you know, a prediction that has no basis in fact. However, I think that David's boldness can be an example to us. I think that one of the things that it models to us is that it says, look, the reason that David does this is because he wants to give credit where credit is due. Yes, it was because he had that kind of confidence. Yes, it was because he had that kind of faith. But it's also because he doesn't want people to think, no, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the one that kills you. I'm going to be the one that slays you. I am going to cut your head off. You notice throughout all of those verses, it's, God is going to do this. God is going to deliver us. God is going to take you down and lift your head off of you and, and all of this other stuff. It would be almost tempting for a modern Christian to say that I'm going to do this because you don't want to speak for God. And I understand that inclination. I really do. But sometimes we may overplay that a little bit and forget in our desire to do that to give God credit. You know, when we talk about how wonderful it is that, that God worked through our doctors to help us through some kind of illness or that God was looking out for us, that's a good thing to do. But sometimes we want to give credit to the doctor or credit to our great medical system or credit to, uh, you know, our truck for having all these safety features or whatever else it may be. I think sometimes we neglect to give credit where credit is due and remember that, yeah, there are really smart people in the world that are really intelligent, have invented things that are really good and that help us and may even save our lives or, or do wonderful things to help the poor, so on and so forth. Yeah, they're all great. You know that I'm a big C capitalist. I believe in the free market. I believe that it is the best tool for eliminating poverty and human suffering and so on and so forth. You know why? Because God made it that way. It's not because the free market in and of itself is something that, that you know, is an entity or something that is pushing all this along. It works because it's the system that God put in place. It's the, it works because it's the reason God designed us to operate under. It works because of God, not because of us, not because, you know, Adam Smith or some other great thinker was so great to come up with it. Just like David, we need to remember to give God the credit where credit is due. And another thing that's somewhat more magnanimous of David is he kind of gives credit where credit isn't due, too, doesn't he? If you read the last little part of one of those verses, you'll see that he says that God will deliver you into our hands. You notice David's the only one standing up to Goliath, and he's actually already chastised the armies of Israel for not showing more courage. Hmm you would think that David would almost be justified in taking the credit himself or just giving all the credit to God like he just did and not mentioning that there's this big army behind him. But David wanted to inspire the people. He also wanted to assure them that God had their backs just like he had his. It wasn't because David was so darn special. It was because they were all God's people and that God was looking out for all of them. That God wanted what was best for the Israelites and, and the people serving in the army too, not just David. David wasn't his favorite. He gave credit to them and said that you're going to be delivered into our hands collectively. 
because he understood that God was working through the rest of them as well, even if he happened to be, you know, giving a little extra attention to David at this one particular time to accomplish this task. But finally, and I think this is the most impactful part of the entire speech there at the end of verse 46. He says, the reason this is all going to happen is so that you will know that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. One of the great things about leaders is that they're visionary. Vision is important to them. They see beyond the immediate future. Uh, the immediate future. They're looking beyond what is right in front of their face. That's what makes them leaders. One of the things. Not the only thing, but one of the things. David had that. Because David's not just looking at the impact that this battle is going to have with these people that are assembled right now. He's certainly thinking about that. He's certainly wanting his courage to inspire other people. We already went through the verse where he says, let no man's heart fail him because of this, I will go and fight him. So he's thinking about the men of Israel and the Philistines as well. But ultimately, he knows that this story is going to reach farther. That it's going to go farther than just what happens here and now today. That what is about to take place, we're still talking about it thousands of years after it takes place. We're talking about it today in America, in a completely different place, in a completely different culture, in a completely different time. And we're doing so because David understood, with this story, everyone will know from here on out that there is a God in Israel this day. That God is there, that He is present, that He loves us, that He is taking care of us. Because it's the only way that, you know, 14, 15-year-old boy is going to take down a nine-foot giant with a sword and a spear. Because like we've already said, David rejected a sword. He rejected armor. That's not what he put his faith in. He put his faith in God. And this is the ultimate culmination of that. He put his faith in God and decided that he was just going to take in his trusty slingshot, no armor, and that was going to be it. Because Goliath put his faith in his armor and his spear and his sword. That's what David's being critical of him here. He says, but I put my trust in God. And after today, the rest of the world is going to, too. David's faith is inspiring people that he never met thousands of years after he's died. That's the kind of courage that we need to emulate. If we put our faith in God and not these worldly things, then we can have the kind of faith that inspires people for generations as well. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.